to remember as we take up once again studies from Ezra and Nehemiah that we said at the beginning of them that they are really most modern and some scholarship agree that they are really a continuation of the two books of Chronicles. That is, that 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, were originally one book. Uh, even today in the Jewish scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah are still one book. They were first divided by Jeremiah and then later again divided <coughs> so that we have them in their present arrangement as separate books. But nearly all good scholars do agree that there is a joint authorship behind these volumes. Uh, it is very difficult for us to put our finger upon the person who was the author. Nowhere is it clearly uh, is he clearly named? Uh, Jewish tradition unhesitatingly ascribes the authorship of both Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah to Ezra himself. Um, there may be a lot to be said for Ezra's authorship. The only difficulties are two. They're found uh, in two places in the record and depend very largely upon the high priest the particular Jadua uh, mentioned, and in another place whether they are actually the sons and grandsons of uh, Nehemiah or whether they are his brothers. If we could only know the answer to those questions, we would be much, much nearer to, the, uh, to a clear understanding of who actually was the author of Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. But one thing we can be clear, and that is that behind these books there is a common hand. There are, of course, the personal memoirs of Nehemiah, and there are the personal memoirs of Ezra. Uh, and, of course, there are other official documents and uh, letters and so on that have been brought in. But there is a, a one common hand. You will remember all that we said in the first study upon these two books. Uh, on the technical side. But leaving the technical side for a moment, <coughs> what is the real value of Ezra and Nehemiah? They are, of course, to be considered and can only be considered as to a real understanding, a spiritually intelligent understanding of them. They have got to be considered with chronicles, for they complete the overall picture of uh, the bird's eye view, the overall survey of God's dealings with his people from Adam to the coming of the Messiah. You remember in many cases Chronicles Ezra and Nehemiah duplicate other material in the word of God because they are written from a different standpoint to so much else in the word of God. They are written to give us the key to God's eternal purpose to give us, as it were, an interpretation of history from God's point of view. And that is why Chronicles goes right back to Adam and Nehemiah takes us right on to the coming of the Lord Jesus. So the whole of Old Testament history is comprehended 
by these books. Then again, the greatest value of Ezra Nehemiah is this, that as all scripture uh, in the Old Testament is given for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come, given for our example, these things happened unto them in a figure for our, as an example, for our admonition, our instruction, correction, alignment, whatever you like to put it. All old, the whole Old Testament can be summed up in that. We make a lot of the beginning of the Bible, but very, very little of the end of the Bible, of the Old Testament. And, there, and we ought to see that the real value of Ezra and Nehemiah lies in this, that it contains principles that operate at the end of an age. Ezra and Nehemiah is all to do with recovery. I think you all will remember, I reiterated it again and again, uh, that the key to Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, is the house of God, the temple. That is the, the, the key. You will not find anywhere, if you read a Roman Catholic commentary, or if you read a Protestant commentary, you will find no other key given. Everyone, for once, is agreed that the key to Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, is the temple, the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. Everyone's agreed. It's so obvious that I don't see how anyone can disagree. But Ezra and Nehemiah are one further step to Chronicles in that the additional note is sounded of the recovery of the temple. Chronicles deals with the conception of the house of God and the actual building of the house of God and the conflict over the house of God. But Ezra and Nehemiah deals with the recovery of the house of God. It therefore contains principles that are absolutely operative at the end of any dispensation when something original has been lost which the Holy Spirit is out to recover. Therein lies the real value of Ezra and Nehemiah. It embodies, it embodies principles of recovery. And therefore we ought to take the more especial note of these two, this twofold book in the light of our own day and generation and in the light of the coming of our Lord Jesus. For here there are principles not only operative in recovery of the temple or the house of God, but here there are principles that are operative in bringing in the Christ. Of course, people will disagree sometimes with us about this. But the Lord Jesus will not return to this earth willy-nilly, any more than he came to this earth for the first time willy-nilly. He did not come in a vague, abstract way. Certain conditions had to be fulfilled. Certain prophecies had to be fulfilled. A certain people in the earth had to be in, within certain boundaries. There had to be certain conditions, all of which had to be operative 
before the Lord Jesus could return. In the same way, we understand that the Lord Jesus will not return for the second time just in any kind of way. He will return when certain conditions are fulfilled and when there are certain people within certain spiritual boundaries in the right condition. That is the real value of Ezra Nehemiah. That's why I believe that it has such a vitally important message for us in our study of it. We have got to understand that this simple book has within it the key to the end of a dispensation. Well, that's all just the introduction, really. It's a very, very simple little review of our rather bigger introduction to Ezra Nehemiah. But there, there it is. It's something that needs to be stressed and re-emphasized. Don't let us just come to these, this twofold book in a kind of uh, mentally interested way, in the sense that it's just history. The Bible is not a history book. History is only found in the scripture when it has something to teach us. God is not, as some people spend all their time trying to prove that God is true and God is right and what he's written is right and so on. But in actual fact, the Lord himself is the one who's presented us with the problems by the things he could have said and hasn't said and the things he could have put in and hasn't put in and the things perhaps it would have been better to have left out which he hasn't left out but added. So the Lord has helped the modernists and the higher critics very greatly uh, in their work in that sense because he's not bothered about whether men believe him or do not believe him. It doesn't make any difference to the truth of God uh, or anything about his purpose as to whether men believe or do not believe. God is sovereign in that respect. He has given us something in which every part is as important to the ending. And therefore each part within the word of God has something to teach us. History is not there as history, but because it embodies a principle or embodies something of very real importance for us, in type or figure. Well, that's something about the beginning um, of this book. You, you will all, I trust, remember something of the background of it. The people of God are in captivity. They've been in captivity for 70 years. They were taken away by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, when Jerusalem was raised to the ground after a three-year siege. And then they were dispersed into different parts uh, of uh, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, where, strangely enough, after much cruelty and unhappiness and um, loss and impoverishment, they were left completely in peace and began to settle down into little colonies of Jewry where they had their own life, their own customs, their own language, uh, their own everything. Strangely enough, as they settled down, they not only became respectable citizens, but they began to dominate the commerce of the empire. And as has always been the case, slowly but surely into their hands, the commerce of the whole empire came. 
And then we find that they not only became respectable, but they became also very prosperous. And then an even stranger thing happened to these Jewish exiles. They, the thing that had caused their exile, they shunned. They refused to intermarry for the most part. They refused to get mixed up with the Gentiles in a whole number of ways. They became exclusive, tightly knit together colonies of jewelry. And that's where the synagogue began. And, uh, well, it was all very respectable and prosperous and peaceful. And then, you know, 70 years later, due to the undying ministry of certain faithful men of God, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, uh, and so on, a little remnant was kept alive spiritually in a, in a way that was peculiar, distinguished them from the rest of their brothers and sisters. And after 70 years, you remember, a largish group returned. They were for the most part penniless, impoverished, and for the most part went on foot, but they returned back to the homeland. Now one age, and indeed the decree of the king's father, was that they should rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. That was the whole point of their return that they might rebuild the dwelling place of God. Do you remember in the background that the Babylonian Empire had given away for the Persian Empire? And this is one of the most dramatic and most remarkable changes in the history of the ancient world. For the Babylonians in every way were entirely different to the Persians, not only in racial origin, but in much else, particularly in worship. Whereas the Babylonians believed in a multitude of gods and beings, divine beings and so on, the Persians believed in the unity of the Godhead, who could never be represented by any image or anything at all. The only symbol that God had was fire. That was the only visible symbol of his presence. They were called Zoroastrianists. Astrianists. And, uh, because of their uh, religion, because of their attitude uh, to life, they, of course, had a natural affinity to the Jews. And therefore, the whole attitude to the Jewish exile was chased in the sovereignty of God. Well, that's all the background. You remember that the return was in three parts. The first return was under the rubble, and we find that recorded in the first six chapters of Ezra. The second return, uh, which probably numbered only about 3,000 people, the first was something like about 42, 43,000 people. The second under Ezra was about 60 years, 60, 70 years later, and was led by Ezra and numbered probably about 3,000. And the third return was under Nehemiah and was a very small company indeed, and that was 12 years later to the return under Ezra. So, the interesting thing emerges that as the exile took place in three stages, three clearly defined stages, so the return to the land was in three clearly defined stages. That's very interesting. Well, what, do, what did we learn under the first return? We see, therefore, that in this whole question of recovery, 
recovery of the dwelling place of God, the house of God, uh, the Lord wants to teach us three very clear things. He's defined these principles uh, in these three, the threefold return. If you turn with me to Ezra and the first six chapters, we will very swiftly, I'm afraid indeed, pass over the main point that we considered. Now, um, you will understand this evening that I'm not even looking at the notes that I have of the um, studies that we did. Um, I'm leaving quite a lot out and taking up just one or two points and dwelling on them. I know it's a bit much sometimes to have to go over for, the most, for most of you over what you've already heard. But um, I understand that reiteration is the basis of good teaching. So it may be that um, uh, this will help all. Under the first return, uh, led by Zerubbabel, we found that the first thing, and this is most important, the first thing that the Holy Spirit brings into view is the recovery of truth in practice. The recovery of truth in practice. May I put it another way? Reality. Wherever you find the word truth in Scripture, it does not merely mean truth as something written or as a teaching. The word means something more than a teaching. It means reality. What is truth? What is truth about anything? About anything. It's not necessarily something in writing. It's not necessarily a doctrine. Truth is the reality about anything. That's true. Now, the Holy Spirit teaches us under the first return, led by the rubber ball, the recovery of truth in practice. That is, that there is a sphere of truth. As Paul, writing to Timothy, I believe, spoke of the church as the ground, the pillar, and ground or bulwark of truth, of reality. He spoke of a sphere of reality, outside of which you could have good things and right things, but they would not be, as it were, judged. You might get lopsided, unbalanced. You understand? You could have a lot that was right and true and real. But there is a sphere in which all that is judged and exposed. Uh, the first thing the Holy Spirit teaches us in this whole question of recovery is that he is after, first of all, the recovery of truth in practice. Now, this question of truth in practice is the house of God. The whole first six chapters of Ezra deal with the house of God, or the temple, or the sanctuary, 
Would you like another word, another title? The dwelling place of God. We call it the church. A recovery of the church. Now, as I said uh, a little while ago, we're not going to literally um, uh, dwell on every point that we took in our previous studies. But I want to just draw out the four things uh, that, that we, we see as absolutely vital that were contained in these first six chapters of Ezra. The first thing we found is this, that in the recovery of the church, the first thing the Holy Spirit focuses down upon is the question of ground. If you take Ezra chapter 1, and verse 2, and verse 3, and verse 4. Of course, we could go to a whole number of verses right away through these six chapters that will take just those three verses. We read this. Has charged me, he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. The third verse. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, which is in Jerusalem. And verse 4. Whosoever is left in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, besides the free will offering for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. If you read through those chapters, you will become almost tired with this little phrase, the house of God which is in Jerusalem. This is all the more amazing, because these book, this book, this, these records were written after the children of Israel were back in the land and when they were dwelling once again in Jerusalem. So it is all the more remarkable that the Holy Spirit has reiterated and re-emphasized this question of the house of God which is in Jerusalem. All the time, which is in Jerusalem. The whole tragedy of the division of the people of God into Judah and Israel was over this question of the house of God. Where the house of God should be. Where God should dwell. Therefore, the first thing we see about the recovery of truth in practice is this. It is a question of ground. Christianity asks, what are you? Brother Lee says that we ought to ask, where are you? The two things are as necessary. It is most remarkable that the first question the Holy Spirit asks is, where are you? And not what are So we find there's a question of ground. What does that mean? In practical terms in the 20th century. It means simply this. You cannot build the church where you want. You cannot build it anywhere. There is clearly defined ground upon which alone the house of God can be built. What is this ground? Well, let us first speak of it spiritually. This ground is Christ. Simply, Christ. It is not a teaching. It is not national. It is not racial. It is not social. It is not a question uh, of it being built on certain forms of church government, or certain rites, or ceremonies, or practices. The church can only be found on the ground of Christ. 
But we must go one step further. Where is Christ found? According to the New Testament, we find Christ in our locality. You will not find a single instance of any church anywhere except on the ground of its locality. The Church of God at Ephesus, the Church of God at Corinth, the Church of God at Rome, the Church, uh, the churches in Judea, and so on. Always on the ground of their locality. There were never two churches in one locality. You all search the whole of the New Testament, you will not find two churches in one locality. They were always referred to the church at. The church at Jerusalem met, because it was so large, in a whole number of different homes. It had to. But it was still only the church at Jerusalem. Do you understand? In other words, there could only be one church to one locality. And this church was built on what Christ is as found by saints resident within that locality. That is what we mean by church ground. And the first thing the Holy Spirit speaks of here in symbol and type is that the house of God could only be built in a certain place. Now we haven't got time, but you will all remember how we went back to Deuteronomy and then traced through from Deuteronomy where first of all the Lord began to say and make sure that when you come into the land you do not build the house of God where you wish or where you desire. Nor do you offer your burnt offerings or your sacrifices or your vows where you wish. But you will come to the place which I will choose to cause my name to dwell there. And there I will accept your offerings and your vows, and so on. And the Old Testament is almost comprehended by this simple fact of, of where God chose his name to dwell. You could build wonderful edifices anywhere else in the world, but they weren't the house of God, and God did not dwell there. You can build them in Babylon, you can build them in Egypt. You can build them in other beautiful places. You can build them in a place called Bethel, which means the house of God, which Israel did. But it's still not the house of God, and God will not dwell there. He may meet you there, as he did at Bethel. He may speak through his prophets there. You may have experiences there of God, but God will not dwell there. He will only dwell in one place, and that place is Jerusalem. Now we are children of the Jerusalem which is above. But still today, it is exactly the same. It's the thing that Christianity has lost sight of. So that it has left the one ground of unity which it is possible to have worldwide. For those of us who love and know the Lord and have exchanged it for that kind of basis which issues and results in a million Fragments, divisions, text, and so on. A tragedy. So we find that this question of ground is stressed at the very beginning in this whole question of truth being recovered in practice. You see what the Lord is first saying is here, that it's so very simple. The first thing God would do when he starts to move is to see that we are gathered on the right ground. It's no good trying to build the house of God anywhere else. I know, and I expect you do, of many groups and companies uh, here in this country and elsewhere that have got what we call New Testament patterns. Everything is New Testament patterns. They have tried to return as clearly as possible to the New Testament. 
and to set up a New Testament pattern. And when they've done it all, and they ask the Lord to bless it, they cannot understand why the Lord will not commit himself. And today there are many people leaving, young people leaving New Testament patterns. Disillusion. Quite disillusion. Because somehow or other, with the New Testament pattern, the Lord will not commit himself. Why won't he commit himself? Because it's a question not of New Testament pattern. It's a question of Christ, down on the ground of our locality. The pattern is in the life of Christ. You can't just find it and build on it. That's very important. So we have to understand that. And another thing connected with that is this, that nowhere in the scripture, and particularly here in Ezra and Nehemiah, will you ever find uh, quite the same holding good at the end of a dispensation as it did at the beginning. Let me explain here. You will find that it is a principle that there, with God, what we could call a remnant principle. I can't think of any other words to describe it. But it is simply this, that at the end of every dispensation, there is only a remnant. Now, isn't that interesting? God begins off with a race. It ends with Noah and seven other people. And so, right the way through, you can trace at the end of every single Old Testament age or dispensation, you have only a handful left. Out of a great number. And it is so with the New Testament age. We began off with all. We shall end with a remnant. Now that does not mean that all those who are the Lord are cut off from the Lord. It doesn't mean that at all. If you read very carefully the scriptures, you will find that they were still the Lord, so they still remained in exile. But there are always only a remnant that returns seems to be almost a principle with the Lord. Isaiah was always talking about the remnant that shall return. All the prophets speak about the remnant that in the end returns. And so it is even if you look at the book of Revelation, which corresponds to the prophecies of the Old Testament. You will find that what begins off with everyone ends with an overcomer. That's all. It narrows down. Does not mean that the others lose their salvation? They do not. But those that are found at the end, on the original basis, are few. And here in Ezra, in chapter 2, you will find the genealogy of those that return, a small remnant, a very small remnant of a great nation. Only a small number has come back. So we can only expect to find a small number on this ground the end. We can't expect all the Lord's people to return to that ground. The cost is too great. There's far too much prosperity and satisfaction, the things as they are, for there to be a great number that will return to such ground. But there will be those that return. And then you will notice in Ezra 3 and in verse 3 and in verse 6 that we find the altar is mentioned. This is the second thing about uh, the first return. So the first was ground, the second was the altar. The cross is primary to anything of the church in expression. The first thing we must do, if we would know the church of God recovered, the house of God recovered, is to get a number of people 
onto the right ground. The second thing is for the altar to be put into its place. That is for the cross to be operative in the life of that group. When you get the cross operative in, in the life of that group, something starts to happen. Calvary always precedes Pentecost. Not only historically, but always in experience. You can never become part of the church. You can never contribute in the church. You can never become, as it were, knitted in to the body of the Lord Jesus without a deep experimental knowledge of the cross. The altar is the first thing, practically, after the ground. First God defines the ground under the rubber book. Jerusalem. You can't build my house anywhere else. You get back to Jerusalem and you can build the house. But before ever a foundation is laid, before ever they mark out the site, before ever they start to quarry the stone or get the timber, the first thing to be put into place is the altar. The brazen altar is put into its place and furthermore, upon the brazen altar are offered burnt offerings and sacrifices. Before ever a stone is put upon a stone, before ever the materials are got there and prepared, the cross is operative. The altar is in working order and being used. Isn't that a most significant thing? It simply means this, that getting a group of people onto the ground of Christ in their locality is, an, is in some ways an easy thing. But to get the altar into that people and those people onto that altar is a very difficult thing. And sometimes you will find that we have succeeded in the first and failed in the second, and everything is at a standstill. For there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that until we come to terms with the cross of our Lord Jesus, there can be no church in expression whatsoever. If you feel that you are not really functioning, or not really part of what God is doing, then you must look not to others, but to the cross in your life. The easiest thing of all, and the cheapest thing to do, is to blame others. That is what people always do. They say, oh, no one cares about me. No one bothers about me. No one goes out to me. No one sort of looks after me and all the rest of it. Well, maybe those things are very true. But if everyone showed you all the love and care and affection they possibly could, that would not make you one whit more of the church. Not one whit. All it would do would be to thoroughly deceive you. Because you're surrounded by affection and all those kinds of things, you would think you were part of it when you were not. And that is why it is the most difficult thing in the world to make a person realize that they're loved and wanted when they obviously are and they've got it right into their being that they're not. I tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit has put it in. And the Holy Spirit will put a, a divine veto upon any sense of your being wanted or loved until you come to terms with the cross. This is the most, the most thoroughly heartbreaking business of all. It's the question of coming to terms with the cross. Come right down to it, and we have to say, well, if no one wants me, if no one loves me, if no one's prepared to draw me in, if no one's prepared to speak to me, no one's prepared to help me. I'm on this ground. And I'm going to go out to everybody else. 
But the first thing I do is come to terms with the cross. Now, there's no good trying to get round it. As I say, the cheapest thing to do is blame your dear brothers and sisters. And the more you blame your dear brothers and sisters, the more hard you make it for yourself. That's good. You'll find it out in experience. It just make it more and more and more difficult. <clears throat> no, it is a question of the altar. The first thing before ever the stones are there, the wood is there, the material is there, the vessels are there, or anything else is there, is the altar put into, into its place and something's offered on. So you must understand, and I must understand, that before ever there can be a, uh, any church in expression, we've got to get a people onto this right ground and then get them onto the altar. When we do that, we've got the first primal thing that is absolutely necessary for anything happening. And may I say this further thing upon this matter, because it is so practical, and I suppose there's not a soul in this room that's not got this as their problem, this question of being loved and loved. Uh, I might just say this, that it is just there that the Holy Spirit puts his finger upon our self-centeredness. It is deeper and in many ways most tangible thing. You see, we, we talk again and again when we preach the gospel about self-centeredness being sin. That is sin. It gives rise to everything. Then people come to the Lord. They come to know the Lord. They, they come into the knowledge of their forgiveness. They're cleansed. But still this ghastly, evil, perverted thing lingers on under the surface until it's brought to the cross. And it is this thing which wrecks fellowship, wrecks any going on with the Lord, wrecks order and harmony. Or it's only self. There's no bones about it whatsoever. When next you feel like that, you can tell yourself, all this is, is self-centeredness, a capital letters, that's all. And the Lord will give you a bigger and bigger and bigger dose of it until at last you come to the question where the easiest thing to do, quite frankly, is to put it all on the altar. Either you'll go or you'll come to the altar. That's what happens. One of those two alternatives. So we find the altar there. The altar is the thing that governs everything. And when you have the altar in its place, then everything else begins to develop. You'll find this again and again everywhere through scripture, in type, and shadow, and later on in the New Testament, in practice. But it's there. The third thing we find, and I'm going to pass over quite simply, is in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10. After we've got the ground, after we've got the altar, the next thing we have is the foundation. That is an interesting thing. The foundation is laid after the altar. Isn't that interesting? But the foundation comes after the altar. What is this foundation? This foundation, we're told in the, in the New Testament what this foundation is. That is a foundation which is laid, which, which is Christ. God has laid this foundation. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. We're told elsewhere that the Lord Jesus is the chief cornerstone and the prophets and the apostles are the other. They are together the foundation. Understand? It's really all Christ. The foundation. What is the foundation? I will tell you what the foundation is. The foundation is an, a primary and essential experience of Christ corporately as our life and oneness. Now, this is very interesting. Before ever there can be any recovery of the house of God or the church in fullness, there must be a primary experience of Christ corporately. 
as our life and oneness. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that when you've got a people on the right ground, on Christ in their locality, they've taken that ground clearly and they refuse to take any other ground or to leave it. They're staying there, whatever they find out about one another or about anything else. They're staying there on that ground. That is the only ground they can see. They've got to stay there or lose everything. When they see the altar and come to the altar, the very next thing is this, that they start to find themselves being introduced in an elementary way into a knowledge of Christ as their corporate life and oneness. Now, you know this will explain a tremendous amount for many of us. Why do we have those terribly dark times that sometimes last, last for months and sometimes for years of suspicion and reservation about the rest, about our other brothers and sisters? Why is it that the Lord allows us that seemingly so much evidence for things? Why is it that we are always, as it were, the center and the recipient of so much trouble? What is the Lord trying to do? All he's trying to do is to bring us to the place where we can distinguish what is Christ and what is not Christ in myself and in one another. In other words, we come to this elementary experience of Christ as our corporate life and unity in this way. We say as Paul said, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is, Paul said, the only thing I'll touch in my brothers and sisters is a crucified Christ. What has been produced by a knowledge of Christ crucified? The rest, well, I know how rotten it is, so I won't bother about it. That's a great place to come to. But no one comes there theoretically. You won't get that in the Bible college either. You may be taught it, but it won't come to you in experience. You will only come to that when you're knocked all over the place by your brothers and sisters. You're so not all over the place that you come to the point where you think, I'm going to leave. I'm just fed up with the Lord. But then you find that there's a strange fear in your heart of committing a kind of spiritual suicide. And then you say, oh dear, I've got strength. I can't leave them. Oh, oh, the terrible friend. You have to stay with them. And for a while it's grim and dark and terrible. Until we discover that what we're seeing now is exactly ourselves living. It's Jacob and Labor. Of course, everyone's sick to death and thinking that it might be themselves they see it. When they come and they pour out and they trouble about so and so this and so and so that and the other and the other. Well, sometimes. I've heard it in court. Isn't it amazing? That person is All that they've retailed and all that they've now passed on to me is a perfect picture of themselves and their own But that's how we come to it. That's an essential experience of Christ as our life and unity. There comes a place where either we go or we stay. If we stay, we take Christ as our life and unity, and something happens. We're forged. We're forged. I can't explain it any other way. It comes by the cross. Men and women who lay down their lives, then suddenly they're forged. They're forged. And you know, they can hear the same old stories about one another, and they, and they know they're true, some of them. They say, well, I know that, I know that, but it just doesn't show them anymore. They say, I'm being forged into what is a Christ in these people. And they've been forged into what is a Christ in me, however small. 
So you see, the church, I might say, is the ground and the pillar of reality. Do you get that? Reality. Not that smug Christian idealism, which pictures a beautiful, lovely thing up there where all is sweet fellowship and service and harmony and order and everyone loves everyone else. It's also very, very beautiful. That's what we paint so often. And then everyone thinks, oh dear, they're all hypocrites. They're hypocrites. I say they're hypocrites. Brother Lee described to me as a Spishbark of the work in Formosa as seeming. And I have never anywhere heard anyone describe the work of God on earth as seeming. I was quite taken back. I've since thought it over a lot and thought that the only person I have ever heard describe a work in which he was engaged in, in real terms. When the cross works, and when the Holy Spirit gets to work, things become very seemly. Things come out. Things come up. Things come to the surface. Everything becomes real. Whole oh, when we first come, look at them. Such things. Such perfect things. Look how they do. Look how they pray. Look how they talk to each other. Then we get to know that we find that so-and-so is very irritable. We find so-and-so is jealous. Ah, oh, so-and-so wants to get through. And they are getting through. But still, that is While they're getting through. <laughs> and they're jealous while they're getting through. And there are many other things while they're getting through. And so often as the Holy Spirit dealing with them, all these things that are ugly and vile that come up to the surface. And we can all we can see is the scum on the surface. And sometimes we lose sight of what God is doing in that person. Because we can only see what's clouding the vision. This is an essential experiment in Christ as the foundation. There will never be the church built until the Lord gets the people forged in such a foundation. Never. Never. It's we might as well all pack up now. You'll never have the church with all its wonderful ministries and functions uh, and so on until Christ has got a foundation like that first. And that's the thing of God. The altar and the foundation. Get that? You've got everything. What a business it is to get such a foundation. But there you are. This is the recovery of truth and practice. The house of God. The dwelling place of God. You see, the whole point is this. May I put it like this? This whole question of the church down here is like the kingdom of God. That's right. It's the sphere of the church up there. That's all. What's going up there? There's no scum, no seamless, nothing impure, no blend, no fault. Down here, we're conscious of all the other, the other side. But it's down here that what goes up there is produced. Not in some purpose nor in some lovely little secluded spot of peace and scenery and birds But here, with how very ugly brothers and sisters, there that, that the real work is done, and that there the gold is produced. Down so you understand there's a lot there, isn't there? The
the last thing we find in this first return is the question of the house of God. Actually, oh yes, it's here, uh, the house of God is produced when you've got such a foundation. It all goes up. There's a lot of opposition. And you get a lot of opposition in there. Uh, you remember we, we studied that and thought about it for quite a while. All the opposition against the house of God really going up and being completed, but it never stopped it. When the Lord has got a foundation, you can't stop the work. You can stop it for a little while, but you can't stop it. The essential thing is ground, an altar, and a foundation. Okay? All stop. The trouble with modern day Christianity is it's tried to bypass the first three and get to the end. So it built a roof and some walls without the foundation. And the whole thing's unhappy. It may look very perfect for a little while, but just wait for a few storms. Uninhabitable. You can't have Pentecost without Calvary. And that is the tragedy. So much that is prevalent amongst us who are the Lord's people. Well, there we are. That's the first return. What about the second return? The second return covers the last four chapters of Ezra. What does the second return deal with? You remember it was under Ezra? And there were only about 3,000. Now, here is the interesting thing. Do you remember? Everything in these four chapters, 7, 8, 9, 10 of Ezra, is to do with inward character. Building isn't mentioned at all. We don't get an instance of actual building. Only in his prayer, is it mentioned about the house of God being recovered and the wall in Jerusalem. But that's all. In actual fact, we get nothing mentioned at all about uh, a building. It's all a question of inward character. Now, let us mark this very carefully. This underlines for us the absolute necessity of spiritual inward character. Uh, it's a great mistake if we swing to the other extreme and say all it is is a question now of getting people onto the ground. It's not a question of spirituality sort of business. Uh, spirituality is the thing that, that we've been taught and taught and taught and taught. But it's a question of getting people onto the right ground. No, no. That is so. But it is an absolute necessity to have inward spiritual character. And the second return is all to do with the recovery of an inward character in the people who return. Things were in a very poor way. You've got them back in the land. You see what I mean? You've got them back to Jerusalem. The house of God is rebuilt. The services are in progress. But you haven't got an inward character. The people have got... They've married foreigners. And so we could go on. The whole thing is a mess. And this second return is all to do with this question of the recovery of inward spiritual character. But, and I want you to underline this in your heart, not in notebooks, but in your heart, that the Holy Spirit here is teaching us the correct order in recovery. Now, that is the most important thing of all. We must note the order 
that the Holy Spirit had placed these things in. First, the recovery of truth in practice, then the recovery of inward character. First, get the people onto the right ground. Get the altar. Get the house of God. Then we'll have inward spiritual character. Now, I want you to note, first of all, the Holy Spirit's order, and I'm not being critical, but I believe only truthful. You must also note the inversion of that order today. The present-day inversion of that order. You see, Christianity today speaks of spirituality, of inward spiritual character, as being the beginning and the end of everything. And in that, many of us would agree, at least as to its necessity. But they speak of it as the beginning and the end of everything. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. It doesn't matter where you worship. It doesn't matter to what you belong. So long as you're a little broad, don't get too narrow. It doesn't matter to what you belong. The real point is this. You must have something of the Lord. The real point is spirituality. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Let, let's forget what you belong to, uh, to. Let's forget where you worship. See? Now I'm speaking of the best streams of evangelical Christianity, not those narrow, exclusive, closed circles. See? Doesn't matter. Let, let's not divide over things where you belong or what you do or that kind of thing. The whole point is inward character. Inward character. The best exponent of this and the most blessed uh, interpreter is Keswick. A wonderful thing. Yeah? The whole point of Keswick is let people come from all their different connections and places. But the point we want to do is to get an inward spiritual character. Well, that's all very, very wonderful. And let us also make this point. That uprightness, in us, holiness, righteousness, godliness, Spirituality is a great game. A great game. It doesn't matter in what you are, and I might say this, and it might horrify some, it doesn't matter if you're a Roman Catholic, if you're a born again believer. If you believe that, and I believe that, oh, many. It doesn't matter if you're a Roman Catholic. If you've got something about you which is godly, and something about you which is upright, and something that is true spiritual character, it's profitable. It doesn't matter what, where, what, what you're connected or where you belong. What is of Christ in every one is profitable or not. But let us also say this. Our righteousness is not necessary to God. We make a big mistake if we think it's necessary to God that we should be righteous. Do you understand what I mean? I mean by that that our uprightness somehow qualifies God. It doesn't do anything of the kind. God had committed us all to hell. It would not make a single difference to his own holiness and righteousness. He doesn't need our uprightness. He doesn't need our righteousness as if he is in need of our godliness. He is himself sufficient. And therefore you mark this. To be godly, to be spiritual, to be Christ-like, and, as it were, just to be an individual floating around in the earth is a great gain to us, but of no gain to God. 
valuable for us eternally, but not valuable to him. But if God can get things gathered on the right ground with an inward spiritual character, it's as much gain to him as it is to us. Or they will become his dwelling place, eternal. They can be knitted into what he's doing. They become members of one body, members of each other, fused together. That's the whole point. That's why the Holy Spirit gives us this order. First, he speaks, you see, of the recovery of truth in fact the house of God. Then he speaks of inward character. When we've got it that way round, we're safe. Just think of it. For when God gets inward character on that ground, it's preserved. Corrected and preserved. And your shade of those deceptions that will quickly grow. Up. So you see it's all a very, very remarkable thing that the whole of these four chapters is to do with this question of um, inward character. You see, the first thing the Holy Spirit says, got a people on the right ground. Now the next thing to do is to see that there's an inward character there. Now, what is the heart of this inward character? Well, I'm going to leave all the points here the next one. There are many of them. But what is the, the real heart? The thing the Holy Spirit focuses his attention right down on is mixed matter. Now, isn't that it? What does this mean, mixed matter? Why all this fuss about mixed matter? Why this seeming harshness and severity on the part of Israel over this question of mixed matter? Because this question of mixed marriage goes to the heart of the character. It goes to our affection. It goes to those, the deepest part of our being and the part which so often is the most unyielding. When that is dealt with, spiritual character is produced and only that. That's the heart of true spiritual character. Many of us are prepared to serve the Lord so long as those things are not really done. They're prepared to go quite away with the Lord so long as those things are not brought to the cross. But this question of inward character is that it is that that has got to be touched by the Holy Spirit. When that is touched by the Holy Spirit, then you've got a character. That means severity and, of course, discipline. Discipline and, and the severity of the handling God. It is remarkable when you read Hebrews 12 about the Lord, those amazing ones about the Lord receiving sons, the, the sons that he chastens, he chastises, he disciplines in the world, he trains them in a rather severe, strong way as children. Uh, and it goes on to say, as we've often quoted to you, he scourges every son whom he loves. Whom he loves he chased her and scourged every time he received her. Well, that speaks of severe uh, handling, doesn't it? It's scourging, you know. It's not just chastening. It's one thing to be smacked across the knuckles uh, by your father for plucking some flower 
that you should never have plucked in the garden. It's another thing to be thoroughly whipped. It's another thing altogether to be thoroughly whipped. To be scourged. But you see, it says that the Father, he chastises. That is, we get many raps over the knuckles. We're disciplined on many occasions because he loves us. But also there are times when we get a thorough hiding. Because he's receiving us. See, he's accepting us as sons. Otherwise he's got a place to which he's receiving us. A responsible position in the household to which he is bringing us. So we get some thoroughly good hiding. Now and again. You understand? Well, that's all to do with inward spiritual character. The proverb says, spare the rod and spoil the child. That's true, isn't it? Spiritually, anyway. Now, the Lord doesn't spare the rod and spoil his children. We have the wrong and certain kind of child is produced. So, let us remember this then. If we're going to leave it there, we'll leave uh, Nehemiah to next week, Lord willing. Uh, there we've reviewed Ezra, the whole book of Ezra. There's a lot there, isn't there? There's the question of this recovery of truth, and then there's the question of the recovery of an inward character. Now, only the Lord can interpret those things to you and to me, to give us a real understanding of what they mean practically. The Lord doesn't just want an inward spiritual character anywhere, connected with anything. He wants to get us onto his other ground. And then, when he's got it on the this ground, he wants to produce an impact. Later on, when we study the book of Esther, we shall find that this spiritual character is found amongst the exiles, far, far, far away from God's dwelling place and from the land where they never think about it. They're amongst the Gentiles, speaking the Gentiles' language and living in Gentile conditions. But they've got spiritual character. The recording finishes at this point.